Hello and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast recorded for the second or maybe almost coming up to the third week of August 2020. Uh, I just made a cup of coffee this morning and I'm out at the, the, the peak of a mountain out in eastern Oregon. Pretty cool spot up here that I was able to get to. I was looking around on the map. And I was able to find, uh, I was able to find some spots that were old uh, lookout towers. Like, um, I guess they were probably like old, uh, like fire lookout towers for when there would be lightning strikes or, or other starts of fires for forest fires in the area. I'd driven to a couple of them uh, before in the past. I think some in, in Northern California. I'll talk about those in a few. But, uh, but yeah, it's cool out here. If you uh, if you look around, you can find where these cabins are. And I guess a lot of them now aren't really used as as lookout towers for like the fire department or, or I don't know, forest department or whatever it would be. Um, but now a lot of them have been kind of retrofitted to be overnight cabins that you can, or other people in the public can uh, rent out and uh, get for like a night or two nights or, or a part of a week or something, which is um, pretty cool. I guess they book um, pretty far out in advance, but uh it's pretty cool. Yeah, I was looking around at some of those, and I've been on a trip for a couple of days now, uh, driving around in some of the uh, the BLM and uh, National Forest Land that's out here in eastern Oregon. And there's a lot of it. It's cool. A lot of space, uh, a lot of open space in this part of the country, too. It's a little bit of a difference. I noticed between, um, between west of the Cascades and east of the Cascades, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the National Forest Land on the west coast well yeah i'm trying to think of it a little bit but as best as i can tell a lot of the the national forest land on the west coast is really mountainous with a lot of ridges and a lot of thick timber too a lot of thick uh, evergreen forest really beautiful area but it's just kind of hard to traverse uh, that kind of terrain a lot of them have um, have roads that are pretty well maintained to go through some of those areas Um, but still even with that there's just not a lot of uh open expanse and uh they're kind of kind of tight quarters sometimes so it's kind of cool getting out over here into eastern oregon where it sort of flattens out a bit opens up a bit and even though there's still quite a few trees in the area that i'm looking out at uh, like I'm, I'm looking out south of me here just miles and miles and miles of uh of forest land and mountains that probably go out i don't know, I don't know 20 miles 30 miles or so but it's cool. It goes out for a while. Um, but there's changes in the land, too. I look out, like I was saying, I'm right at the top of a, the peak of a mountain here. And so I can see um, out to the east over here. I look over and I see like a few ridges and a few bluffs. And uh, it seems like it goes on forever. But it's pretty cool uh, in this area up here. I think looking out uh, west of me here, I can see the lights of um, one of the cities last night that's out here, or you know, just one of the small towns that's uh, in the area. And you can kind of see the the little dots of those um, uh, those farms and ranches, and some of whatever the concentration in downtown of it is um, out over in the in the valley to the uh, to the west of me. But it's pretty cool. Yeah, you can kind of see the the changes and, and ripples in the landscape up here. But yeah, there's a, a a lookout tower up here in this area, and uh, you can rent them out. There's a few others in uh, in a, a couple of other spots I was at yesterday too. So I was going through, uh, traveling down these Forest Service roads, and then you can pull off and then go up. Uh, it's like pretty high. It's like you're driving up on a rim, 
you kind of like already made most of your way up the elevation, but then you can take these little uh, side roads off that, the main road, and then it'll cut up to, uh, cut up to a cabin that's put up with, um, you know, with forest service money. And it's probably been there for a long time. And, uh, yeah, hang out up there. Just like picnic tables and a bathroom and stuff. It's really probably one of the well, more well-serviced, uh, high altitude areas that, uh, that, you know, you can kind of pop into, but it's cool. They maintain the roads pretty well. So you can just drive right up to the summit of it and then check it out and then drive right back down, which is a kind of, kind of nice feature of it. But I'm not at the lookout tower right now. I'm actually, uh, probably a half mile away over on another peak that's uh, just a little bit higher in elevation. There's no lookout tower over here, but uh, there's like a couple geological survey uh, markers up here that they've got pinned down to the top of the summit, which is kind of cool. I should check them out. Maybe they read uh, a little bit more accurately what my altitude is. I think that it's around 8,500 feet right now, which is cool. It's pretty high up here. It seems like it's one of the highest things around. I can look out. I can see... uh, uh, one of the mountains in the Cascades. I can see Mount Shasta from here. Yesterday, I was in a spot where I could see Mount Thielson and Mount McLaughlin, which was cool. Um, kind of getting to spot that in the evening time. You can see kind of the the cracked, kind of craggled rock of the horn of uh, of Mount Thielson over in uh, what is it like south? I don't know in the the southern southern section of the Cascades in Oregon. But yeah, it's cool. I can look out. Uh, into California a ways, and I can see Mount Shasta from here. Can't see anything like Lassen. That's probably way too far. I can't really see anything that goes north either. Uh, yeah, I could probably make out something if it was a little clear. There seems like some smoke in the air. Probably a lot of smoke. Not really quite sure which fire it's coming from, but uh, but yeah, there's like some good bands of of smoke in the air, and it's a little bit hazy. You can kind of uh, you got pretty good visibility for for miles, but um, but right on the brim of the horizon is sort of a a murky uh, kind of smoke toned cloud that uh, sort of stretches all the way around you. Uh, beautiful area up here, it's cool. So um, so yeah, that was uh, well, about a quarter mile away from this lookout tower up at the top of this little rise, and uh, it's cool. There's this little little two track road that uh, just kind of meanders right up the side of this hill, and then you just sort of pop up onto the summit, and then you've got something that's about, what would that be? Maybe 10 yards, eh, 15 yards across by, say, 50 yards long. Sort of the the flat enough spot of the summit that you can kind of walk around on before it starts starts to dip off. Really only... Only an area of about probably 100 by 100 feet is really flat enough to park a vehicle. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the area kind of stretches on a bit out from there. And there's a bunch of uh, kind of outcrops of rock. I think like I'm looking down over uh, to my 2 o'clock, and there's like a, an outcrop of rock that kind of sticks up as I look out over to my, what is it, probably 10 o'clock over to the other side. It drops off pretty quickly as it uh, kind of pulls into a ravine before it pops up to the the peak of another hill over to the the east of me but uh but there's like a little another little two-track road that kind of carries on really quite steeply i might add that uh, just kind of drops down that hill lord knows where it goes i don't think i'm really gonna take that one i think uh i was looking at uh, a camper that i passed yesterday at a spot um in like a more a more set up campground they had their fifth wheel set up but they had like uh, they had four 
ATVs out there, and I was thinking, man, having a quad out here would be pretty cool. You're just like, you know the the kind of terrain and stuff that you can travel over, and uh, uh, just kind of the ability to sort of take some of these roads, take some of these steep little treks and stuff would be kind of fun. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think it, it probably isn't good for for my mid-sized uh, highway ready truck to uh, to be jumping on. But beautiful spot up here, really cool. I was uh, spending the night up here last night. So again, I was saying it was, you know, it's just right at the peak of the summit. I was thinking I was going to get uh, a ton of wind. Like that's what I ran into yesterday when I went up to the the edge of a bluff where I was at, at the high elevation point where they had their lookout tower. I was down from it a little bit at a, at a set of picnic tables in an area that they had set up. Really beautiful. You can see, uh, you can see the, the land kind of slope off to the west, sort of gradually into forest land, but to the east... It's just a real steep, probably 800 foot drop off that uh, that goes down to a lake bed valley floor um, out to the east of me. So it was really cool kind of uh, getting up there and seeing it. But when I got up to that spot where it had been in the trees in the more uh, more moderate elevations of it to the west side, there hadn't really been any wind or any uh, inclement we- weather or anything like that. But when I got up near the peak, those two fronts of weather as the sun was going down uh, were just kind of mixing in a weird way. And you got a ton of wind blowing each each and every different way. So I was just getting blown around a lot up in that area. And there was uh, some people up there that seemed like they wanted me to go. So I took off and found another campsite. But um, beautiful spot up in that area. It was really uh, kind of interesting. But yeah, when you get up to those, uh, those peaks, you'd kind of figure you'd be running into a lot of wind or, um, or I don't know, I was thinking it was just going to be blowing me out for a while so it's not really the best places to camp and kind of like I was saying it's sort of a small area I'm claustrophobic enough that it sort of feels weird just uh being up here by yourself parking on the the tippy top of a mountain hanging out all night it was kind of it was kind of a uh, kind of weird when it got dark or you know like after after uh, the sun went down and it's nighttime and you can just sort of see darkness really all around you but for the the city lights out to the distance of, uh from where I'm at and uh, yeah, it's just kind of a small area. It's kind of freaky walking around. It's sort of uneven ground and stuff. You're like, man, where am I right now? But it's cool. It's a beautiful spot. Got kind of used to it after a bit. It seems like uh, it seems like other people are kind of used to it too. I see uh, other trucks kind of driving around in, in different areas. Or yesterday I did. I saw a couple of trucks moving around and stuff. But uh, yeah, I was up here last night trying to make some um, some photographs. I got here a, a couple hours before sunset, and I tried to uh, started to make some. Uh, some photos of the sunset and uh, photos of the 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 landscape around me, which is pretty cool. Um, really beautiful spots up here. So yeah, like when I was looking south, there's I think um, I think I'm looking out over into the uh, over into Nevada from how far south I am right now. So I think I'm in the uh, the Fremont, and I was finding this out the Fremont Winema National Forest, um, and I think last time I said Winema, kind of a I don't know, an American Oregonian pronunciation of something that was probably, uh, it sounds, well, I don't know. I should look up who Winema was. I'm not really sure. But, uh, yeah, over in this, uh, Fremont Winema National Forest area, it's pretty cool. And, um, I think it, it stretches out into, uh, a section of, uh, the border. Well, I'm not sure really where the border is, but I think we're, we're right about at the border of, um, the the corners of northern california southern oregon and uh i bet like over deeper east of me is uh, a lot of nevada too which is cool so um 
Yeah, I was looking out south of me, and I could see uh, a, like a lightning. Still, like a, yeah, I could see lightning. Probably six or seven uh, good flashes of it. Seems like hundreds of miles to the south of me. Never heard anything, you know. But uh, you could just see like a little uh, or a big bright pop of light way deep into the south, um, where they're having some kind of some kind of lightning storm. You know, it's probably uh, I don't know, probably about Reno or something. But uh, but uh, it's uh, it's cool up here. Yeah, it was a nice kind of clear night. Really warm too. I think uh, everybody in the the Southwest is talking about this heat wave that's coming through. Like Arizona's going to hit one fifteen, and uh, probably everywhere around, everywhere in Nevada and Vegas and Los Angeles is going to be, or east of Los Angeles into the Palm Desert over by Joshua Tree is just going to be baking during this uh, period of August right now. Probably uh, fortunate that they're not uh, <laughs> running Burning Man. I mean, I guess everybody's used to 115, 120 degree days if, uh, if you're heading out into Burning Man, Black Rock Desert area every summer. But uh, but yeah, after like the, the COVID-19 pandemic stuff, all live events in Nevada are shut down. I think everybody in California is kind of spooked about some of those uh, mass gatherings of people as well. So doesn't look like there's going to be a burn this year fine with me i suppose but um but i'm sure there's a bunch of people that are missing out <laughs> which is too bad <laughs> but i was up here taking photos uh, in the evening time of sunset and i was trying to uh, photograph some of the the contours and uh changes in the land you can kind of you can kind of see some landmarks and uh just sort of the way that these bluffs sort of rise up from up or you know they kind of rise up over the land and then they have these steep drop-offs so i was kind of trying to get some images of that and the perspective that I have from up here on top of this mountain. Pretty cool. It's uh, it's kind of interesting looking out and, you know, like looking down at a ridge that I've only really seen from the, the valley floor of it before. And the valley floor of it looks huge. Like when you're down there, you look out and then you look up at this massive table, you know, mesa of a rock that's just kind of uh, built up in front of you. But, uh, but then outside of that, all around it is you know, just kind of flat and low in those areas. Uh, but yeah, up here, it just seems like the, the tippy top of it. So you can kind of look down into the forest and then you can look at where the forest ends and where the, the ridge begins and it just kind of has a steep drop off into a lower valley. Um, but pretty cool up here. So I was taking photos of that, taking photos of some of the, the uh, kind of, well, I guess it's where like creeks and water have run off the mountains over the millennia and have created these deep draws that cut through this desert landscape out here and how they uh, kind of pull through this uh, sort of tighter canyon area and then open up into a wider area that was, I don't know, eroded by some lake or, or something like that back in the, the Pleistocene era and probably probably a few ice ages, a few ice age cycles before that too. So I'm not really sure how old this landscape is. I mean, you know, I was um, looking at some other stuff and you, I kind of have like some perspective on 15,000 years, but man, if you talk about a hundred thousand years, I don't really know. I can't really tell you, or I'm not really very good at that. I know a lot of people do, uh, or they have like a pretty good um, kind of mental picture in their head of what the, uh, the changes in the landscape over the last 15 million years uh, was, but uh, it's kind of, kind of cool like to see like the the geological research that they have out there for some different stuff i was up in northern oregon a few weeks ago at i 
think when I was talking about being near the John Day area and I was uh, reading some information about the geology in that region and how it was formed uh, like way back. I guess they find a lot of fossils up in that area. I think there's a town called Fossil. I remember being a kid up there going to the high school in the back past the football field and you can just dig away at some shale and if you kind of crack that shale open, you're going to see these fern leaves or these, you know, just this full pattern uh, leaf in the rock. And I guess they've also found um, like a, a lot of uh, like animal fossils out there too. Part of the law is that you can't uh, pick up uh, vertebrate fossils is uh, I think what I understand. I think you can get seashells. I'm not totally sure. I think you can get a fossilized seashell. But maybe they even ask you not to do that. I'm not really sure. But I guess the uh, yeah vertebrate, verte- fossilized vertebrates are, are requested to be remaining in place. But the researchers have gone through and found a lot of that stuff and, uh, and tried to collect evidence of the geological formations and changes that have happened over the years. And I think with that, they're uh, able to kind of make a pretty clear map of the, the way that the Oregon landscape was constituted back then. I think that uh, in some of the information I was reading, it was uh, at a period of time before the quaternary period where we're in right now. This is the last couple hundred thousand years that we've had these um, cycles of ice ages that come on and off. But before that, there was a period of time where the Earth's climate was, I guess, a lot more wet and a lot more warm. Um, So even even in an area like uh, northern Oregon, which is now sort of a a dry kind of high plains uh, grassland area as uh, as you get up into the Columbia River area over in eastern Oregon, like as you go from, I don't know, somewhere in, somewhere around Pendleton to Kennewick, you know, something like that landscape. Um, there's, uh, yeah, just a bunch of kind of dry, flat grassland now. But uh, apparently 15 million years ago, it was something like palm trees and uh, like a more, a more, well, like a way more wet uh, rainforest, or not rainforest, but uh, a way more wet forested area that was uh, more tropical in its nature. And I guess that kind of reflected with a lot of the animals that were there. Like they talk about camels being there. They talk about a predecessor to the modern horse, like a, a kind of a small horse. It was uh, probably more like a deer-sized animal, sort of these uh, kind of fat-nosed uh, like predecessors to what would be something more like a bear have been found out there. A lot of different animals have been found out there, um, which is really cool. I think rhinoceroses, big beavers, sloths, a few things like that. That might have been later later collections of animals. But uh, yeah, in some of those some of those early collections, it's interesting to, to hear about the kind of uh, kind of landscape that it must have been. But apparently through some kind of uh, geologic activity, a, a big, uh, like a really quick or fast-acting mudslide came through and just buried everything in that region uh, all at once. And so I think it hardened there and then fossilized a lot of those animals that had been trapped in that mudslide or, uh, I don't know, that mud event that came through pretty swiftly. Um, and yeah, it just kind of encapsulated all those things, including the trees too. I guess there's some areas where you can see some some spires that uh, that kind of are now part of what's been eroded away from the creeks and the rivers that are flowing through that that area ever since then. You know, over the the last few many million years, <laughs> they uh, they've uh, washed away, and now we have uh, some of the the river canyons and creek canyons that we see through the area now, and that's where we see some of the the exposed rim rock and stuff that kind of follows along with. Uh, uh, with the canyon as it uh, as it flows out toward the bigger 
Columbia River or Snake River area over there in Eastern Oregon. Um, so it was really cool to, to kind of get a, a little bit of a perspective on uh, the kinds of things that are or that have changed out here over the years. But um, but yeah, I guess you can you, they've made out that those spires are old, old tree trunks that have been um, encapsulated in mud and then had fossilized over the years. And then now as they're uh, being exposed again through erosion, there's uh, kind of a, a it's really just sort of a, a spire shape on the edge of a cliff face, but uh, I guess they've been identified as uh, fossilized tree trunks. It's pretty cool. Um, so out here in this area, as I'm thinking about the types of changes that have happened over the, the past, I don't know, 100,000 years or so, which is what I have just a tiny bit better of a handle on, at least in this region, you can kind of see some of the different erosion patterns that have happened to the landscape out here. Um, like when I look out to the, to the west, northwest of me, I see... Um, I see like another huge bluff that runs across for miles. And then below that, there's a big depression in the land that uh, really runs really flat and smoothly for miles and miles and miles as it goes up uh, to the north. And apparently, uh, as, as you find out more information about it, what now is really just a dry desert bed of sagebrush used to be back in the Pleistocene era. Uh, a pretty significant lake that uh, stretched on. It was probably, I think they marked it on the rim rock of the bluff to be like 500 feet deep. You know, now that lake will dry out in the summertime. If it's a, if it's a dry year, there won't be any water in, uh, in, in, I don't know, two of the five lakes that are sort of just the little puddles that seem to be left of what once was a huge, massive body of water that was out here probably changed the way this landscape felt 30,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago. Those sort of things would oscillate on and off between the, uh, between the ice ages. I think, what is it, a 30,000-year period? That uh, makes sort of some sense. Well, so what was it? It was, uh, it was about 15,000 years ago from now that we were coming into a period where the ice age was starting to end. And as we were kind of coming into what we, what we now have as the Holocene um, but before that, um, well, I think they kind of marked that at like eleven or twelve thousand years or something like that. But some of the earliest human artifacts, or I think they're coprolites, they've been found in Mesa Verde, Chile, way down in South America, recorded, proven out to be human remain. Um, but uh, yeah, fifteen thousand years ago is what they were carbon dated to. Um, so really interested to kind of think about the human exploration in some of these areas. I mean, if, the, if you follow the, uh, the land bridge uh, hypothesis that, uh, that they came over uh, Beringia uh, from Asia to Alaska and then had traveled down, um, down into the Americas, uh, that must have been something like 15,000 years ago that, uh, that that had, I guess, started. Well, I don't know how that goes. It would have been there or maybe before then, too. Um, some ideas are that it might have been before then, but it seems like some of the earliest things that we've ever found are from about that 15,000 year mark. There's some ideas that, uh, that they had like, uh, kind of a rudimentary canoe technology where they were able to, uh, sort of skirt along the, what would have been the, the much lower coastline of the Pacific. Um, I think they say it was somewhere around 400 feet lower in elevation than where it is now, but they were able to kind of, uh, skirt around the, the coast and travel a little bit more quickly 
um, to get down towards South America, but you know they you know, do do some expeditions as you kind of kind of do some little jumps out in the ocean, travel along the coast, pull over, have a camp. It probably took a long time to figure all that stuff out, or you know for them to to maneuver their way through uh, all the landscape and survive and build and gain resources and stuff. I don't think it was just one guy, or maybe it was. There's sort of a an interesting thing how there's outliers uh, where. I think when they track different animals too, that uh, that normally have kind of a home range of you know, fifty miles or something like that. Uh, I think they've been tracking. I think it was wolves. I think cougars sometimes too. But yeah, I think I think a wolf was one that I had heard a report of that had uh, like traveled like fifteen hundred miles. You know, it was just like on a run or you know just just took off. But um, but really, like a lot of them have sort of a more localized home range, and then uh, for whatever reason. One of them has uh, uh, the explorer gene, as a dog would, whatever that would be. But uh, for whatever kind of urge or drive it has or, or whatever type of uh, pressures are put on it by its environment, it ends up making a, a really significant amount of distance all, all in one go. So there's sort of a, a, a gradualism uh, perspective where things happen pretty gradually and uh, families begot families begot families that would kind of uh, slowly traverse uh, a little bit of distance south at a time to kind of make its way down to South America. And then there's the other idea of uh, what it would be like punctuated equilibrium, where uh, just about everything's almost the same all the time, but one person does a whole lot more, or a small group of people do a whole lot more all at once, um, which is a uh, Another another idea that's out there for uh, for some of the way that uh, things spread. I think it's sort of a, a universal idea of uh, what is it? Uh, I think it was the idea between uniformitarianism and and punctuated equilibrium. Where um, and I think that's still kind of a, a concept in in evolution that uh, is talked about. Um, I think for a while it was considered that. Uh, like uniformitarianism was what was taking place where everything was about the same and just sort of gradually evolving slowly over time with slow incremental changes that had happened since the beginning of time. Um, well, uniformitarianism, I think, is more of like a religious perspective that came from the um, Catholic Church where everything has to be the same because God made it that way. But uh, but if you kind of uh, relax that a little bit into some of the the the, the things they were trying to tie it to later in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. Um, and then I guess onto the, the 19th century where they were, or, you know, in the 1800s when, uh, when scientific method, naturalist researchers, geological surveys were going on in the, the West here. Um, they were able to kind of put some of those ideas together. But I guess there's always been a, a debate between, um, between those ki- sides of things. You know, even, even trained scientists sort of disagree about... Uh, about uh, which which side of the line to come down on. I was hearing the idea also called uh, well, this is a different idea, but it, it's sort of attached to it. But um, but there's the idea of lumpers and splitters, where um, as you're categorizing things, uh, certain people, trained people, uh, sort of select to lump very similar things together uh, and identify it in the same category, while others split those uh, small differences and want to identify uh, something that might be similar into two different categories, um, which is kind of an interesting idea. I think that that happens in biology a lot when they're trying to to classify an animal. 
Um, you know, you have a, I don't know, you have a catfish or something, but you have a, a catfish with uh, these features of it, and that's like maybe a different species. Is it a different species or a different subspecies? Um, but it's kind of interesting how they come into those delineations between those decisions. You know, it's got to be a person that decides categorically what it is. And so um, those who would want it to be the same, those are lumpers. Those who'd want it to be identified selectively different, those are splitters. And I guess that's sort of a, a conversation that's uh, ongoing in the scientific community even still, uh, which is, makes sense, you know, because it's about human categorization, categorization which I, I think, I think I was might have said right, but uh, I think that's sort of the the intent of it. You know, it's like a, it's a human endeavor that we're involved in by trying to uh, survey and categorize these different things that we're experiencing in the world, and it's to better have a context of what those are to ourselves, so we can explain them to ourselves. But we don't have to. You know, it's not actually definitive if it's if it's lumped or if it's split. It's just sort of a natural occurrence, um, and it is different. Each individual you know, unit of that species is, is probably uh, a little bit different. You know, if you could imagine uh, if, if any one specific individual of the species or any two, I suppose, um, were, you know, Noah's Ark style, were the only uh, remaining members of that species to procreate and then have offspring, then uh, you would have kind of a genetic bottleneck of, uh, of those um, inheritable traits of that animal. And it might not be representative of every trait that was expressed in that animal for a long time. So um, I guess that's kind of to say that it's just, there's some things we see and uh, some things we don't. And there's a lot of uh, genetic expressions that we could have if uh, there's different pressure, environmental pressures or, or different, uh, I guess, different circumstances that those creatures were involved in during the evolution of their lifespan or, you know, the species span. But uh yeah, it's kind of cool thinking about some of that stuff and, and thinking about uh, some of the past um, environments that must have been out here. You know, I think about uh, what it was like when the Great Basin area out here was uh, more full of water. I guess, like I was saying, sort of during the Ice Age or during the Pleistocene era where you were kind of coming in and out of Ice Ages over 200,000 years, 2 million years, 5 million years. I don't know. They say something like that. But uh, um, so, yeah, like the Ice Age that we just got out of, I think is part of a a cyclical period that the earth has been in for, um, for a long time now where you kind of have an ice age and then rolls off and there's not as much ice, but there's still ice caps. And then it rolls on again where there's ice and then rolls off where there's not as much ice. Um, and then I guess for a significant period of time, like, you know, way back in the dinosaurs and for a significant period of time for the, the millions of years that followed that, uh, was it like the 68 million year ago mark where we, uh, we lost the, we had that big extinction event. There was a, a big period after that, too, where there was uh, um, no ice caps. You know, there's no no ice on the South Pole, no ice on the North Pole. And uh, it was like a, a tropical tropical Earth or something. Um, and I have heard that, well, I've heard a number of reasons for it. I probably won't speculate too much on it now, but you guys should look it up. It's kind of interesting. There's uh, some interesting ideas about uh uh, how the environment used to be but um but yeah it's kind of a, a trip to think that there had only been really a couple periods in earth's history and development over the last four billion years where there's been a snowball earth i think is what they call it a uh, period where there's uh, like a significant amount of ice and snow um across the land and uh, held up in uh, glaciers over high elevation areas either at the poles uh, or even like on the mountaintop areas of uh, the uh 
the north, like the high northern and low southern um, regions of the earth. But uh, but yeah, and I guess when there is ice on the earth, that's what that's what an ice age is is uh, a little bit of what I've been learning. So kind of kind of a trip to learn some of that stuff. Um, but uh, but yeah, thinking about some of the Pleistocene stuff here in the Great Basin, where the uh, these giant lakes, like kind of like almost inland seas, had existed for a while. It really must have been uh, uh, quite different. What was it like, uh, Lake Lahontan out in Nevada? I guess there's like the Great Salt Lake that we see now. It's just a big, giant salt flat. And apparently that used to be, you know, a, a, an inland body of water that had developed. Um, and then, yeah, out here, I think they talk about, um, <clears throat> I think they talk about areas of, like, uh, what would it be? I guess it's the northern Great Basin region of probably like Silver Lake, Summer Lake, and then as you travel south to Abert Lake, and then whatever whatever's out here, I'm not really sure what this area would have been called before that, but apparently all of those were just connected as one uh, enormous lake that sort of stretched on for a long time. Or there, you know, there's some breakups in mountains and stuff, but there was there were just really really big bodies of water um, that uh, that kind of carried on out here, and then it just started to, to dry up over the years. Um, I guess even like 500 years ago, there were there were more significant lakes out here, like um, that would probably like more more or less resemble something closer to Klamath Lake, like we have in Oregon now, than uh, than what we see out like in the Alvord. Like I've talked about the Alvord Desert before earlier in the podcast. I was talking about the Black Rock Desert. Black Rock Desert, that playa, is made, you know, from the silt that had settled flatly across a lake bed that had been out in that region and is now dried and no longer there. And so it's just interesting to kind of perceive some of this uh, Nevada landscape, deep southeastern Oregon landscape as something that had uh, really been something occupied by a lot of water at once and now is is a significant desert region that really doesn't receive any water. Um, So it's just kind of perplexing to sort of ponder, like, I wonder wonder why like that, those kinds of changes have happened in the landscape. Um, but yeah, kind of cool stuff. So, um, over this trip, I've been, uh, yeah, checking out some of these, um, these forest service towers, which has been pretty cool. I've been having a good time kind of figuring it out a little bit. I was, uh, driving around, uh, some forest service roads up in the, uh, the Fremont Winema national forest. And I was, uh, trying to find some campsites, uh, that I'd never been to before and, uh, try and find some spots to, um, to check out the, but yeah, along with a couple lookout towers and cabins that are sort of nestled away up in the mountains there. So, um, yeah, pretty, pretty cool being up here, seeing a few animals. That's been kind of fun. I think I saw my first badger. I need to look this up, but, uh, um, I, I don't think I've seen a badger out in person yet. Um, should probably hold my tongue before I speak too much about it. But, um, but yeah, I was able to like pull it up in my binoculars. It was out on the road, hundreds of feet in front of me and it kind of hurt my car. And then it would just, it would just sort of take off and run further down the road. And then I was, you know, kind of putting along and making my way and it would stop and then turn its body so that it was kind of facing me. And then I could kind of see its face, uh, and body, and it was pretty low to the ground, and it sort of had like a little waddly look to it. It didn't look like a fox or, you know, the way a fox would move or the way that a, uh, a little coyote would move or something. Um, but, yeah, it just looked like a, a little waddly critter that uh, 
kind of scooted down the road a bit, would stop, turn, post up, look back at me. And that's why I was able to pull out my binoculars and try and get in on it. And it looks really quite a bit like a little badger that was waddling around out there, which is kind of fun. And then as I made it a little way up further, closer to it, it I finally got the good sense to to juke to the left and uh, cut off into the forest. So didn't see it after that. But I saw a coyote cut across the land over there. I've seen, I think I've seen a couple of coyotes. One, one of them was like a, a quite a bit further away. Heard a bunch of them. Uh, sending, you know, kind of whinnying and calling and, you know, making those little coyote hoots that they do. But, uh, yeah, I was camped out, I think, uh, two nights ago. And there was, uh, yeah, a little pack of coyotes that were all calling out to each other somewhere, somewhere to the north of me. It seemed like, uh, like a half mile or a mile away or so. But it seemed like they were still, you know, pretty close. They're probably, probably checking me out. <laughs> but uh, a lot of cows out there. So a lot of cl- a lot of cows, a lot of cattle that's been, uh, um, I think, put up on some of that public land uh, through a permit to sort of uh, range around and graze. And you see a bunch of little cows out there, kind of running around with their their mama cow. And, uh, they were blocking the road on me pretty good a couple of times. Like uh, I was like thirty thirty big old black cows and a bunch of little baby cows or you know little little guys were all sort of posted up in the middle of a road and. You kind of have to get closer to them. They just look at you and they start moo, moo, moo. And then, then they sort of start to scatter and then they get scared and then they all run and then they, they definitely scatter. And then, then I kind of put my truck through and, <laughs> and then take off, take off uh, on that forest service road just a little bit further. Uh, I saw a few deer, really only like I think does most of the time out here. Saw a couple cottontails. That's kind of fun. I don't know. <laughs> a couple, couple little critters. But uh, but not not anything too too crazy or or too big out here. I haven't seen any antelope. I haven't. I don't think I've really gone uh, east enough to get into the the antelope country. I think if I cut just a little bit more to the east, I would uh, I get closer to uh, to some of the uh, areas where I've seen antelope before. Like uh, I've been over to like Hart Mountain before, and over to the Steens, and in those areas, I'd, I'd seen um, seen packs of antelope. Uh, or like a little herds of antelope running around and gathering up out there, and they're they're really interesting. That watching this uh, this pronghorn antelope uh, kind of cruising across the landscape over there, I was learning that those are one of like the the well, what is it? They're like they're actually a separate animal from the African antelope, and they're like one of the oldest evolved species in North America. Yeah, the antelope. I guess the pronghorn is, is sort of more accurately what what it's called by some folks now. But yeah, when you see a, a pronghorn antelope out here in eastern Oregon, apparently like their speed and uh, their ability to kind of book it across this uh, this landscape was sort of evolved at a time when they had to they had to outrun apparently what they considered to be like a, a North American cheetah like animal. I think it was a, a little bit different than the mountain lions that we have now or. Um, the jaguars that you find in, uh, like, what was it, like, northern, well, I guess, um, I think New Mexico is maybe the furthest north that you'll find or that they've spotted or seen something like that um, as part of, like, their natural range now. And then, like, south into Mexico and then then Central America. And then up here we have, you know, like, um, mountain lions. But... uh, but yeah, apparently there used to be uh, some now extinct form of a cat that was really uh, fast, like a like they talk about uh, cheetahs being fast. But um, I, guess, I guess the the eyesight and the speed of the antelope 
um, sort of signals that for some period of its evolutionary history, it had to, had to spot things really far away and then move really fast when it found them. Um, and I think that kind of leads to the idea that, uh, that there was some predator competition um, for that, the, for, you know, for those antelope uh, that would have uh, put that kind of pressure on them to, to evolve uh, that kind of binocular eyesight and that kind of, uh, that kind of speed when they're moving around. So it's kind of interesting kind of, kind of learning about and seeing uh, some of these different animals and stuff out here. But, um, but yeah, it's pretty cool. Camped out here up in my truck, had the little, uh, the little Mr. Heater going yesterday, keeping me warm in the evening. And uh, got my sleeping mat and sleeping bag laid out here in the back of my truck as I was doing uh, a couple nights out away from home. Um, but it's cool. Yeah, I got my little podcast rig and the rest of my stuff up here. Got my layers. You know, really, like I was saying, it's just like super hot, like with that heat wave coming through, like they were talking about. So even here, at I think what's about 8,500 feet above sea level uh, it was still like warm almost all night. I think I had to I had to take a layer off yesterday up in the in the forest mountains or you know the forested area mountains I was at um, to the west of me. Uh, I got real cold at night. I think I've got like a 15 degree sleeping bag, and I think it's like 15 degrees is where you'll survive. But uh, I don't think it's where you're going to be comfortable. You know. So I think a lot of people have talked about that before. So a lot of the times when I'm going to bed. Um, with that 15 degree bag, I have to wear a couple extra layers, um, like, uh, just as like clothes, you know, like, uh, like I'll wear, um, like I got this, um, I've got like a wool layer that I keep on and I've got like some, like a wool pair of leggings that I'll keep on that, uh, that kind of keep me a bit warmer at night. And then sometimes, you know, when it's colder, I've had to throw on a couple sweaters or something to try and stay warm. The nice trick though, is that, uh, I've learned if, uh, if I'm so cold that I wake up from being cold, I can kick on that that propane heater even here in the back of my the cab of my truck, and there's enough ventilation of it. But uh, even in the back of the cab of my truck, I can kick that propane heater on for ten minutes and uh, heat the heat the cab of the truck up to some reasonably comfortable seventy degrees, and then uh, shut it off and have enough time of it being warm to to fall back asleep in uh, in somewhat of a position of comfort. So it worked out pretty good. But yeah, this morning at about six thirty. I saw the sun popping up over the, uh, the, the, what is it, this mesa ridge over to the west of me. And then really only after just a couple minutes, it kind of turned from that uh, soft, warm orange light to what would be sort of that <laughs> more harsh, uh, flat daylight look as the shadows. Uh, there's, you know, there's really not like a lot of forest or, or mountains or anything else. You know, I'm at the top of the mountain. So right as soon as it came over the horizon, it was just up and then I was watching the shadows from this mountain cast to the west uh, fade away and uh, turn into what would be regular old daylight pretty quickly. It seemed like you know, 15 minutes or something like that. Interesting how it works out here in, uh, in areas where you got uh, a lot of horizon line around you. Um, but yeah, beautiful morning. Really cool to be up here in this, uh, in this area. I was kind of freaked out by this area, like I was mentioning earlier. Um, but Worked out pretty good. I was thinking about oh, maybe I should like uh, you know take some pictures up there and then flip the truck around, head back down before it gets dark. But um, it worked out pretty well. Hanging out up here, being in the I wouldn't put a tent up here, that's for sure. But uh, but yeah, being in a little spot, spending the night out, setting up the tripod, taking some star photos. That was cool. You got um, you got Jupiter and Saturn out to the due south through a good bit of the night right now, uh, up in the constellation of Sagittarius. And then somewhere around 
11 o'clock, 11.30, probably midnight in most areas uh, where you don't have a great view of the eastern horizon. I was able to see uh, Mars coming up. This morning, it was beautiful. I saw uh, the moon and Mars, or pardon me, the, the moon and like a kind of a crescent moon and Venus uh, rising probably around... I don't know, 3.30 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., somewhere in there. And, yeah, it looks just awesome, incredible to see um, uh, see Venus. It looks really bright in the morning sky. Uh, it looks like it's pretty far away from the horizon line right now. And, yeah, nice uh, crescent moon or you know, kind of near, near crescent uh, shape of a moon uh, right up next to it along the ecliptic line there. So that was pretty cool to, to see this morning. And then, yeah, somewhere around 6.30, the sun popped up and, now I'm back into daylight. So beautiful to see some stuff up here. Oh, and also the Perseids. I probably talked about the Perseids a few other times on this podcast in the past. But uh, yeah, the Perseid meteor showers, that thing comes around once a year um, during this time in late July and August. And I guess uh, has a peak right around the 10th, 11th, 12th of August uh, every year, I figure. And I think some years they kind of predict it to be stronger and sometimes like a, a little bit less strong but um, it was cool during uh, this uh, last couple of days where the moon has been sort of more at that crescent shape uh, rising really late into the night you get these really dark skies uh, I'm sure you know, even with a crescent you can you can still see quite a quite a bit of uh, the sky but uh, yeah for the last uh, couple of days it's just been a really dark and intense sky especially up here in these higher elevations like once you get to 4,000 4,500 feet now I'm at 8,500 feet it's like uh it's just a really uh, crisp air and uh, and really dark sky where you can see a lot of stuff like I mean I could easily make out the Andromeda galaxy with the naked eye last night as I was looking up toward uh Cassiopeia and Perseus and uh yeah just really cool to well I guess and the constellation of Andromeda <laughs> but uh that's always been a that's, I guess, generally as a constellation, that's one I've never really seen the shape of. Um, but, uh, but yeah, looking out, you can just see, like, well, look at that. That's the Andromeda galaxy right there. Naked eye observation of it. And it looks, it looks good. You can see it a lot of times in a dark sky. But, uh, man, really clear to see. Like, uh, looking south into the constellation of Sagittarius, you see that uh, some of those points in the Milky Way that are part of the galactic center, really clearly, just some of those uh, like clusters of stars that are out there, real distant, real faint, but, uh, um, or, you know, in magnitude, but as they're uh, so clustered together, as you kind of look down to the center of the galaxy, uh, that's where you get those uh, really thick and kind of bright uh, plumes of the kind of cloudy look of the Milky Way as it kind of cuts across the sky. But, uh, but yeah, really beautiful to see from an area like this up here uh, on one of these summer nights that, that has that uh, kind of crisp uh, summer warm air up here. Nice night to see some of those uh, summer constellations and a nice night to observe some uh, meteor showers even still. I think uh, on what is like a couple days after the, the peak of the, uh, the Perseid meteor shower, we, I was able to count... Uh, probably like 10 or 15 uh, that were really pretty good ones. You know, there's some spitters that I probably didn't count, but there's a number of them that had uh, had like that bright kind of lasting uh, plasma trail that uh, sort of runs behind it. I guess that's what it is, is as the, as the rock enters the atmosphere, it'll, it'll kind of, well, I don't know if I can really explain it that well, but it'll leave like a tube behind it 
that is illuminated as it's kind of burned its way through that area and then dissipated, you know, to whatever fine, you know, point that it ended. Um, but that tube that existed uh, as a tail behind it, beyond it will stay like visible for a couple seconds after that, uh, after that big shooting star has already passed. So really cool to, to kind of get to see some of that stuff from out here. And, um, seen a couple of good ones like that before, but uh, yeah, pretty fun stuff being out here, man. It was a good time. I'm probably going to head back uh, toward the I-5 corridor today and then make my way back home. But, uh, yeah, it's been a nice time being camped out here over in Eastern Oregon. I've been trying to get some more time of it in the summer while uh, while I've had the time. Also, man, some of these little uh, lake towns out here in Eastern Oregon, I don't even think they've heard of COVID yet, you know. Uh, I'm fine with it, I suppose. But, yeah, I walked into a Safeway yesterday and, uh, only a few people had, or, you know, there were some people that had masks on, but not everybody. Like a couple guys I saw that looked like, I don't know, just younger, eh, they weren't even really rant. I, you know, I want to kind of put some cool name to them, but I think they were just goofy dudes that live out here in the country. Um, they didn't even bring a mask into the store, you know, they didn't have it around their neck or <laughs> they weren't even trying to play it off. Like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm more than six feet away, so. I'm not going to wear my mask right now. I'd probably try and pull that move, but, um, but yeah, these guys just walked around like it was, uh, like it was 2019. What's the deal? I don't know. Nice way to live, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of funny. Just up, oh, well, I guess there's no coronavirus out here, which is sort of what I noticed a couple of weeks ago too. Like being further north in Oregon, some of these little towns, they're just like ah, whatever. So, um, I guess there's other stuff they're worried about. Probably me too, I suppose, but. I uh, hope it, 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 like that. Repeat. I hope everybody's doing well out there. Thanks a lot for listening to uh, this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I'm going to try and wrap it up here. And um, if you guys want, you can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com to see more information about the photos I'm taking and uh, and check out some of the other work that I've been up to. Um, oh, you can also check out BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to throw some support toward the podcast. It's always appreciated toward the photo trips, toward the camping and stuff. And, uh, yeah, the goal is to, to kind of try and continue some of the, the travel stuff over here in Eastern Oregon, California, Nevada, Idaho, um, if they don't lock all the states down. But at least as it is through um, these sections of uh, public land in Oregon that I'm able to travel around and still um, through the, the end of August into September and October while the, the weather is uh, still in season for it. So looking forward to the next few weeks of it getting to travel around, take some photos and stuff. It's been a nice time uh, getting out and traveling and stuff. So hope everybody's doing good. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Always check out uh, more stuff if you want to online. But until next time, I'll talk to you later. Bye.